Healthcare is broken. Both costs and disease rates are rising. The NHS in the UK is the fastest growing failing business, but the same could be said in other countries like the US. So who is driving the health agenda? Why is prevention ignored and natural medicine under accelerating attack? Are we the losers and Big Pharma the winners? In this podcast, I explore this subject with Dr. Rob Verkirk, who's the founder of the Alliance for Natural Health, who has directed many legal actions to protect the right to natural health across a wide range of issues, from vaccines to vitamins. As scientific director, he's authored some 60 papers and knows the inside politics of the health agenda and what needs to be done to not only protect our rights, but also fix healthcare. So, Rob, first, may I wish you a very happy and hopefully a healthy new year. Patrick, great to be on. Of course, 2023 will be healthy and uh, hopefully um, things will start to become uh, sorted after the, the most peculiar three years that most of us have endured in our lifetimes. No, it really has been extremely strange, hasn't it? Um, now, what was <clears throat> what was it originally that got you into campaigning for natural medicine and forming the Alliance for Natural Health? Because you've spent decades now. I mean, this is your only main time job. And what an incredible job you do. But what got you started? Well, you know, my, my background has, has always been looking at nature. So, I, you know, I trained originally as, a, as an ecologist um, and then spent kind of much of my 20s dealing with um, environmental challenges in Australia. So this was everything from deforestation issues to um, chemicals in the environment. Um, and um, I then went back to uni, uh, a, a place called Imperial College. I, I left um, Australia and uh, did a master's there, got a distinction, went into a PhD and then went into um, seven years of postdoc. And my field was was really sustainable agriculture. How do you use the lessons that we understand occur in complex ecosystems like rainforests and coral reefs and apply those to agriculture? So um, I had this campaigning background. I then became um, a high-level academic. Um, and during that academic journey, I started to really struggle with the fact that we as scientists it was all about just putting you know high impact journals on shelves and um and i could also see the shift of the way in which funding was going with the corporate sector increasingly taking control of what kind of science was was being prioritized um i had been involved in some big projects in kenya zimbabwe in uzbekistan and malaysia that were really successful projects and how we could develop diversified agro ecosystems, whether it's cotton, vegetables, um, in these different parts of the world. And what I saw was that the, the agencies that were funding these were using the our results and our outcomes as sort of successful pilots. They were acting like honey traps for more funding, but they absolutely didn't have an interest in rolling this out you know you could solve a lot of problems if you rolled it out and um and i guess a couple of last straws for me were were the fact that when i would meet my medical colleagues at imperial college and you know i, I was working on cruciferous vegetables and we were really um 
seeing how particular plant compounds, particularly those that made cruciferous vegetables quite bitter that you'd find in kale and broccoli and that whole um, family, um, that these had profound impacts on the amount of pesticides that would be required to to manage an ecosystem. In fact, if you had plenty of them in there, you, you didn't need pesticides at all. And of course, when I said, well, the interesting thing is I've seen there's quite a lot of research on these glucosinolates, for example, looking at their role in cancer. And I'd be talking to top oncologists and they would look at you as if you had two heads, like if you weren't talking the language of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, it wasn't on the agenda. Um, and then I got offered a permanent job there and I had to make this decision. Am I going to just, you know, toe the line, be part of this academic system that was transitioning to to really be just, uh, you know, a, a research arm of the corporate sector? Or was I going to leave that system and use my campaigning background to try and fix some of these fundamental issues? And, you know, that was 20 years ago now. And of course, I jumped out of that academic sector and set up NH back in 2002. And I think we, Patrick, you and I met that year for the first time in, um, in you know, Natural Expo in London. I had literally just walked out of my permanent job, the, the prospects of a permanent job at IC at that time. And, you know, your, your background in sort of systems-based biology and, and looking at, you know, fundamental, you know, a systems approach. I mean, it parallels mine. I actually played uh, tennis with Fritjof Capra, the uh, mm. original author of The Tao of Physics, who then got into really promoting a sort of systems-based approach to health. And you and I, you know, very soon we get to realize that all these diseases that are bankrupting our healthcare uh, services, like diabetes and dementia, are fundamentally preventable. Uh, but they're only preventable if you start to think about them in the right way. So here we are in the UK, but the same story is true in the US. Um, we have uh, the NHS. Um, is it not the fastest growing failing business in Britain? Other countries look towards the UK saying, what a wonderful service you have. It's free. Well, it's not exactly free. It consumes a vast amount of our of our taxes. But uh, yeah, what's going on? Is there a correlation between uh, the endless money that needs to be spent on healthcare uh, and, and actual outcomes? Or are we just course. going to have more and more costs and more and more disease? Well, the, the, I mean, the first thing to recognize, it, it's it's a monstrosity. I mean, it is um, it is currently the seventh. If you look just at NHS England, it's the 17th largest employer. If you wrap up all of the um, UK states together, you can actually get it up to probably fifth or sixth position as the largest employers in the world. But, you know, the King's Fund has been saying, the system is broken, it cannot manage. We're seeing, you know, way back in the early days of A&H, in fact, I was invited to some of the um, Chatham House rule meetings that Derek Wanless, do you remember Derek Wanless was the ex-CEO yes, um, yes. of NatWest? Um, Tony Blair said, look, we need a businessman to look at this system. Um, and of course, he sadly did die back in 2012, at the, only the age of 64 with pancreatic cancer. Um, which, of course, couldn't be fixed, one of the hardest cancers to treat because it's always found late. Um, but, of course, he famously said with his two major reports is that, guys, this isn't a healthcare system. It is just a disease management system. You're not even beginning 
to deal with healthcare. And your fundamental problem is that you don't have what he called patient engagement. So people live their life basically having kind of handed responsibility to their GP or their consultants, and then they rock up kind of in the smash repair unit to say, hey, fix me when the system is already, you know, broken. We're deep into pathogenesis at that stage. And of course, it also depends how you measure, you know, the success or the failure. And um, in financial terms, wow, I mean, it's really not working. And we can see that in terms of waiting lists currently, what is it, 7 million people on a on a, on a waiting list. Um, the prospects of not being able to catch up on the COVID backlog, meaning a lot of people are dying at the moment, particularly of what used to be treatable diseases that would extend lifespan, particularly heart disease um, and cancer. Um, Institute of Physical Studies is saying, guys, this is going to blow out to um, about 11 million in just two years. So it, it can't catch up. But when you really look at what should be a proper measure, not of a disease management system, but of a healthcare system, how is it doing in terms of preventing and curing? Do you remember that word curing? We're not allowed to use it anymore, but preventing and curing disease. Well, it's an absolute failure. I mean, because because if you look at the fact that, you know, the big five, you know, including um, heart disease and cancer, but also now we see Alzheimer, dementia, um, osteoporosis, we see a string of over 80 autoimmune diseases. It has no answers. And you mentioned this idea of systems thinking. One of the huge limitations is, you know, the way in which the problem is is actually defined and of course we still deal with a sort of linear causation model you know here's a problem here's a particular pathway that we need to interrupt um we see complete capture by a pharmaceutical interest so we haven't started to look at the multifaceted multifactorial nature of disease let alone the fact that most of these diseases that that are completely causing the system to 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 fall over also have very heavy social economic and environmental determinants so these are all things that happen in the community and the only way in which the healthcare system tries to deal with issues in the community is through this thing called public health and um, public health itself has also failed catastrophically i mean low fat low salt healthy eating. I mean, all of these programs tr trying to teach people to, to live healthier lives have been complete failure because they don't basically dissect the sort of anthropogenic causes of, of disease and all the sort of multifactorial nature of it. Now, just backing up a little bit, um, uh, especially since I just got quaffed, uh, many people won't know that possibly a fifth of your GP's salary comes from what are called quaff points, QOF. And uh, uh, this was set up in the time of Tony Blair when doctors wanted more money. And uh, being the sort of commercial character that he was, uh, he negotiated a deal based on a model which might sound like prevention. The idea was if people had lower cholesterol, uh, which, of course, is a bit of a mistake, uh, and had lower blood pressure and various markers, then the prediction was that this would 
radically reduced the load and the cost of the NHS. So doctors started to earn points, uh, which would convert into money, cough points, if they test your cholesterol, and if they lower it, which of course you can do with statins, uh, and if they test your blood pressure, and if they lower it, which of course you can do with uh, antihypertensive drugs. And uh, that's how the doctors sort of got their money. And 15 years later, when the Lancet and the British Medical Journal analyzed the results of the QOF system, uh, they found that it had cost 30 billion pounds, roughly half in doctors' commissions. Uh, so your doctors are actually, if you like, you know, paid to prescribe drugs. And they're not paid to prescribe the drug. They're paid to lower, for example, your cholesterol. And uh, $15 billion, uh, on the extra costs of the drugs. So this was very good for Big Pharma. But um, what about the model? Did it reduce the incidence of these health problems? And the answer was absolutely not. So I went to my doctor early last year and he, he wanted to test my cholesterol, which was five and a half, but my blood fats, triglycerides were ridiculously low and my HDL uh, was really high. And, and the ratio of those two is the best predictor. Uh, so there he was saying, you've got to be on statins for the rest of your Incredible. life, Incredible. Uh, from which he will learn by lowering my, 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 um, my cholesterol. And another parallel there, which is sort of quite amusing in an ironic way is that high blood pressure is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And so a study was carried out giving um, very either very high dose hypertensive medication to bring the blood pressure down to 120 over 80 or a lower dose to bring it down below 140 over 90. And uh, the higher dose uh, produced in a thousand people uh, one less case of dementia that's what we call an NNT of one. A thousand people have to be treated for one to benefit. Uh, but what they didn't say in the paper was 337 out of a thousand got a serious adverse effect, which would mean death or prolonged hospitalization. So I asked my doctor, what's the NNT for statins for someone like me, healthy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how many people have to be treated for any benefit? And uh, he said he didn't know. Well, I, know, I knew because it was one in a thousand for a non-fatal heart attack, but there's no evidence at all that somebody my age, mid-60s, with no health problem, but a slightly raised cholesterol, is going to have any less chance of, of dying. So that was kind of an, an attempt at prevention. And then uh, in uh, recognition of the dismal failure, as you said, the Public Health England was set up. Uh, it, its remit is to protect and improve the health and well-being of the population and to invest effectively in prevention and health promotion so that people can live healthier lives and reduce the demand on the health and social care services. And I think, uh, as you've said, it's not really working, is it? It it really it really isn't. Um, but yeah, it, it it is extraordinary how limited the whole sort of purview of a GP has has become. And of course, one of the crises that does appear to be contributing to stress um, for GPs is that they are so unable they're so unable to deal with many of the problems that that their patients approach them with. And we're getting a situation now where you would have been a classic example, but there are many. Um, patients who know a bunch of things that are about health that the doctors don't know about because it doesn't come in any part of their original medical training and it's certainly not part of their ongoing CPD because, as you say, they have been turned into... I mean, the, the, this is the the academic cream of our society and essentially they're turned into, you know, drug pushers. Well, a colleague of mine was uh, attending the diabetes lecture for doctors studying at the uh, University of Oxford. And uh, I think it was the last seven minutes uh, was on nutrition. 
And the lecturer said, uh, by the way, guys, these are the medical students at Oxford. That's the only nutrition you're getting in your medical training. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> not and, days, and of course, it's not know, hours, to, it's minutes. Yeah. To, yeah. to every to every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And of course, one of the reactions of late have been the medical students themselves, you know, forming, for example, uh, organizations like NutriTank saying, we've had enough of not being taught about the stuff that we know is central to health. And of course, I mean, the way it worked, it was it was partitioned off to dietetics. So, you know, a GP used to be able to be quite comfortable saying, look, don't worry about it. I don't know about nutrition, but dietitians do. And of course, Patrick, you know more than most um, the debate in terms of how uh, a dietitian perceives health um, is very, very different compared with, for example, the nutritional therapist. And um, and yes, I mean, they 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 don't realize that that much of what they're doing is is managing a problem. Um, it may be, you know, managing blood sugar, for example, not realizing that by getting many people who have a tendency to to gain weight, they're pushing them into insulin resistance, actually creating a problem that once the GP gets to it, they can prescribe yet another drug put someone for example on metformin because they've now got type 2 diabetes so we're not we're not really within that system we don't really have a mechanism that addresses what we would call upstream causation um and that's, yeah, that's I mean, where we a, need to see change yeah i mean there's a few groups uh you know we are encouraged by the movement of social prescribing uh michael dixon dr michael yeah. dixon college of medicine really helped to you know push that through uh, this year, the Public Health Collaboration, which is a group of several thousand doctors, are launching a campaign to put health back into the NHS. There are more and more, uh, sometimes they call themselves free-range dietitians, who are sort of, you know, breaking away um, from the system. But I think we got a very sort of uh, classic uh, case, you know, sort of healthcare study in relation to covid uh, it's such a, a, you know, a horrible example of mismanagement and misinformation. And I know you've worked hard to get government. We both worked hard to get government to say something useful uh, to people to protect themselves with vitamin C and D. And despite now more than two dozen good quality trials on vitamin C and at least as many on vitamin D, which both the Department of Health um, and Public Health England, and NICE, that's the UK's National Institute of Clinical Excellence, that's a bit of, I'm not sure they can really live up to that title, have acknowledged there seems to be a total block on even reviewing the evidence on anything natural, safe, cheap, you know, that you, could help you us. You they change it to health health and care excellence now because they've got to add the, the, the care bit in there. But look, it's it's the 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 simple answer really is that science has been captured regulators have been captured politicians with very few exceptions christopher chope andrew Brid bridgen um, being two um recent examples they have been captured and um you know it, it's difficult we have to address the fact that politics and science now are inseparable when it comes to um a national or a global approach. I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with a, a system, the, the um, Economist Group's um, Democracy Index now puts it at 6.4% of the world's population who live in true functioning democracies. 
and the the transition is moving ever more quickly towards authoritarian systems. So um, still the largest group of people, 37%, but growing rapidly, live in full-blown authoritarian systems. And everyone else lives either in a, a flawed democracy, which incidentally does include the United States, but not the UK. It's still, believe it or not, um, Norway is top of the list, um, believe it or not, um, New Zealand second in the list. But um, so we're dealing with this encroaching issue of, of um, control over by the state and health is a big way of doing that so the the covid agenda has been a practice run at how you can try and deal with a health problem even if it was potentially we still have a question mark over whether SARS-CoV-2 came out of a lab or not whether it did or it didn't makes little difference in terms of the the policy of of what's been done and of course we can see a similarity between that and what's happening in the world of environmental issues, um, particularly around so-called climate change, that you'll see they present a problem or a part of the problem and say, look, we've got a nice shiny solution to it. And so in the climate change um, uh, debate, the issue is all about controlling carbon emissions. Again, a global mechanism to do that Whereas many of us who are looking at a sort of systems view of the issue saying, guys, how about looking at the fact that we have agricultural systems, including those involving um, products that turn into red meat, i.e. livestock farming, that are already carbon neutral? Because once we start to look at the amount of carbon that a proper diverse agricultural system that's based on a living soil can sequester, we no longer have a problem. And they've done exactly the same with COVID. They said, guys, we got a problem. It's this nasty killer virus, but we got a solution out here. If you look at the extent to which um, the, the COVID vaccines were presented as the sole solution, yes, a little bit of talk about antivirals, but the primary solutions, an untested um, you know, genetic vaccine technology in the form of mRNA and adenoviral vectors, um, to be launched on a global population and everyone bought into it. But just like the fact that in the climate change debate, the soil and its abyss ability to act as a carbon sink has been ignored. What happened here is we ignored the terrain. So, of course, the solutions that people like you and I are putting forward about let's manage the terrain better. Let's build the immune system better by using additional cheap supplementary nutrients, um, you know, uh, repurposed drugs in the form of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, the extent to which they had to wipe that out was, was nothing to do with science. I mean, you, you can go to covid19reality.com and, and, and see what has actually happened in terms of all of the clinical trials. And you'll see that natural products to this day are the most successful products. More natural products have been demonstrated to, to be effective in managing um, COVID-19 than any of the drugs. So um, it's it's a distortion of science and it and it is nothing other than pharmaceutical capture. And if you, you know, if you look at the organizations that control that, I mean there is a there is a big daddy of all the pharmaceutical association called IFPMA, the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers and Associations. I went to a Politico meeting that was run by um, IFMA 
um, back in 2018, you know, a couple of years before COVID really broke. And it was all on disease prevention. Um, went across to Brussels for this. And I was astonished. First of all, there were only 120 people there. Nearly everyone was farmer. I was the only person representing a nonprofit. But the whole thing was basically pushing the mRNA platform and a vaccine platform for disease prevention. So that's their strategy. They're not going to be thinking about the terrain um, because their business model does not work with it. I wrote a little ditty the other day. I'm not anti-vax, but I am anti-vaxism. Vaxism is a miasmic obsession that there's only one way to treat infection, and that's with vaccination. Even the idea of the terrain is kept out of the game, let alone the idea that vitamins could suppress symptoms. What gall? So well, in fact, there may be no need for a vaccine at all. There you go. Lovely. I can see you're going to turn that probably into a wrap, Patrick. <laughs> So, yes, how close is this relationship between big pharma and government policy influence? I mean, we know in the UK, uh, you know, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline's so R&D man, uh, Patrick Valence, um, or Valence, I call it surveillance, knighted for uh, his tremendous contribution uh, to the UK in selling lots of drugs. Uh, then becomes the chief science officer. Now, in some countries like Norway, you couldn't have that kind of association. So how close is this association between big pharma and government policy? Well, you, you know, I think you've got to go you've got to go back years and years. I mean, this this has been in the making for decades and decades. So if if you remember the the MCA in the UK, uh, you had the MCA and the MDA the medicines control um, agency and the medical devices agency and then they formed in 2002 to form the mhra um and um and then of course they um were next door to the european medicines agency so the uk going back um certainly to the 60s after thalidomide has been the center of regulation of European re regulation a lot of people don't recognize this um so when you when you look at say the way in which the definition of a medicine has been created I mean I, I've been involved in lobbying to get amendments made to the um, medicines law and my goodness the the pressure from the um you know the, the the lobbyist the pharma lobbyist that is going on all the time 24 7 in europe but the fact that you know the 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 text all of it is being generated for years and years in the uk so even now that we've seen a separation post brexit and ema is at across the channel and, and now is based in amsterdam you know the, the the mhra can get on with it and um you know it is deeply in bed at every level and it it runs through to all of the the legislation but it runs through to um the people involved because they will argue that it's only people who've had experience we have exactly the same issue in gmos by the way but you only people who've had involvement in industry can understand what's involved in phase one two three clinical trials um and um so they've set up a, a regulatory system that only works with those kind of products. And that's why when you start to look at solutions, we, we have to actually just 
move into a parallel system. We have to move to, uh, you know, a more of a big data approach. We have to be outcome focused. We've got to be looking at outcomes that are based on not a single intervention, which is how we measure effectiveness now. I mean, look at those telephone numbers that we saw with with the COVID vaccines when they're first released. Press releases, 95%, you know, effectiveness. And and in fact, there have been a catastrophic catastrophic failure, particularly in doing what most people think a vaccine does, which is to protect against transmission. They've never done that. They've never worked. So they're nothing more than another, you know, pharmaceutical measure. And even then, they have not done very well. And they've created a catalogue of, of um, side effects that has been part of a, an astonishing cover up that's still going on to this day. Now, many listeners may not realize that 1968 was a turning point with the Medicines Act. And the Medicines Act basically um, divided things uh, into two categories. A medicine uh, was defined as something that could treat, prevent or cure a disease or modify the physiology of the body. And uh, at that point, if a vitamin, for example, treated, prevented, cured uh, a disease or modified the physiology in any way, it would have to be classified as a medicine. But to be a medicine, you have to have a, a medicine license. And in order to get a license, you've got to run a lot of trials, obviously safety trials and efficacy trials, uh, costing several million pounds. In fact, the, the, the sort of average cost of sort of large-scale RCT to get a license, about seven million pounds. So that was the point where you could no longer say that an apple, uh, you know, could prevent disease as such unless the apple had a medicinal license, which it could never get because it couldn't afford to get it. And the reason commercially it couldn't afford to get it is it couldn't be patented. Uh, because if you patent something, if you invent something, it's i.e. not a vitamin, not a mineral, then you have a monopoly. And if you have a monopoly, uh, you can charge a very, very large amount uh, for your treatment. It may cost pence, but you can charge hundreds, if not thousands of pounds. And at that point, this line is drawn. Above the line, medicine. Generating money going into, in the UK, the MHRA, uh, which is, I think, over 80% uh, funded by the industry that it is meant to control, which is a kind of a weird situation, uh, and b- below the line food. And that's where, uh, despite evidence that a food could prevent, treat, or cure a disease, we are not legally allowed to say it. That's what happened in 1968. And and Patrick, it, it got worse again in, in 2001, which is the, the you know, the, the even the 2012 um, medicines regulations in the UK are based on the 2001 EU law that was, again, crafted by um, British regulators. Um, but but that that basically uh, separated out the the, uh, you know, the presentation limb to present not to cure or prevent disease or, or diagnose disease um, and the, the functional limb that that not only is any substance that corrects modifies or restores physiological functions but it has to also exert a pharmacological uh, that was already pharmacological action was already in but they changed it then to include an immunological or metabolic action now you will know that absolutely everything, even a glass of water, let alone a cup of tea or coffee, creates that. So what they did is they built into 
the preamble and we we actually got a ten thousand pound legal opinion on this so we really understood the the way it played off they built the exemption to that in the preamble you know the the the, the bits that before the actual articles and the preamble or the recitals as, as they're called in eu law um don't have the legal weight of the articles so in the seventh sentence of the seventh recital they said if a substance is clearly a food a cosmetic or a medical device it's excluded from this legislation but then they put into um article 2-2 you know a, a trumping clause um i think we can still use that word um that that basically said in cases of doubt medicine's law shall apply so basically if there's any kind of doubt um bingo and so we we've been um you know we, we run a, a consultancy we work with a lot of the um uh, main players both u.s companies and european companies to um, navigate these legal systems you have to be able to show that you are clearly a food or food supplement so and, and of course what pharma is doing because the pipeline um, you know, blockbuster drug patent cliff w was hit some 10 years ago when when all the lipid modifying drugs started to come off patent. They're saying, where else can we go? And the coming back to this idea of, of capture, what they're now doing, you'll see increasingly the mention of this so-called new, supposedly more friendly version of the pharmaceutical industry that's called the biopharmaceutical industry. Um, and actually, when you look at the kind of drugs that they're producing, monoclonal antibodies, for example, mRNA vaccines, for example, there's nothing more friendly at all about them. But what they're really doing is starting to play um, much more fundamentally with natural systems, disturbing them potentially to an even greater extent. So, you know, even if you look at the the COVID-19 so-called vaccines, there are some fundamental um, changes to the spike protein, for example, the insertion of the proline, the um, substitution of nucleotides within within it that change the conformation structure of the spike protein. So it's no longer the same as a spike protein that's released from a normal beta coronavirus. And so what we see over and over again as the pharmaceuticals trying to control this this area we're seeing them now engaging in small peptides and of course you know natural health is being engaged with small peptides for for eons um but they're playing around with it in ways that they can start to control gene expression and so these these are no yeah these are no longer a sort of conventional drug which would block something usually uh now we're moving into the field of biologics uh, often involving antibodies. Is that what you're saying? And has Big Pharma really kind of rebranded itself it, as it, biotech? It it really, you know, yes, big biotech. Um, it, it's one of the reasons that the whole system is so joined up between, you know, the, the big biotech. If we look at the freedom of expression issue around science, I mean, the way in which any kind of open scientific discourse is being shunned is because this new biopharmaceutical industry is involved in a takeover and the way in which they want to do the takeover is through a global control mechanism and the best way of doing that is to keep people really ramped up 
in a state of fear so they accept this is this is all down to the you know the the issue around psychology of crowds i mean you you keep people now in a state of fear not only over a succession of different viruses that they may be assaulted with while you ignore the terrain but also on a cost of living crisis an energy crisis a war in ukraine possibility of a war um in in between uh, uh taiwan and china um you know climate change climate change lockdowns um all of this is happening to provide um more global centralized control and of course as soon as we start thinking about systems, we think about decentralization and about acknowledging the freedom of the individual to make decisions that make sense within that the environment and the ecological environment that that individual is inhabiting. And actually, things like democracy and our ability to choose our politicians to do what's best for the public interest is actually rather important. But those things if you look at the authoritarian creep, are increasingly being taken away from us. Now, if you'd been health minister over the COVID years, what would you have done? Um, you know, I, I, I think there's no way that if, I, I mean, I would prioritise the terrain always. I mean, it was so obvious very, very early on that um, people who had um, comorbidities, um, in other words, they had um, sub-functioning um, immune systems were the ones who were worst off. Um, the the notion of of protecting the elderly, the fact that we knew very early on that the young um, were not getting any kind of serious disease. Um, the Swedish model in its early days before the vaccines came was one of the most sensible models. Um, without a lockdown, you allow circulation amongst those with healthy immune systems because You'll note one of the the great disservices they did in terms of educating the public about the immune system was to more or less ignore the innate immune system. So do you remember them talking about the importance of vitamin D and, and vitamin A, for example, for innate immune health or the way in which innate immune training would allow a very rapid, you know, if, if you a, a child who doesn't get serious disease doesn't get serious disease because they basically have such an effective innate immune system that they prevent the virus from getting in and starting full-scale replication within the body. And so, you know, what could we have done to make people who have comorbidities function more like a child? Well, essentially support that immune system. Um, so, um, yes, uh, you know, the partnership with with technology is a, is always going to be, it's the reason I would never put myself forward to be in with government because governments are so linked to the corporate sector now but um the idea of of putting all your eggs into one basket which had a technology that had never been tested at scale was possibly the most insane thing that we've ever seen and i i think you know it'll probably take around about another 10 years or so before everyone will be able to look back on what happened and said it was mad. Well, it was I, I it was fascinating on February the second when uh Chinese government bought fifty tons, fifty million grams of vitamin C and shipped it into Wuhan. And and anyone uh, can actually look up uh the uh, Chinese policies, the Shanghai Medical Association, and for critical COVID, vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C is is used because they started to run uh studies. 
And the interesting interesting thing about China, which is perhaps not on the highest uh, rating for you know uh, democratic approaches, more authoritarian, is that they're actually one of the very very few large countries who um, uh, didn't get uh, under big pharma control in quite the same way. Uh, GSK went over there with a lot of uh, bribe money and got busted and fined very very large sum of money by the uh, by by China. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And as my teacher Linus Pauling said, when you get sick, you know, take a gram an hour of vitamin C. And and there we were uh, with a factory that makes vitamin C in Scotland. You know, for three grand a, a ton. I mean, it's nothing. You know, very simple. Uh, very effective, very inexpensive uh, strategy, still to this day, totally ignored, despite over two dozen effective trials. It, absolutely. I mean, Sinovac, obviously, in, in China, have now got a lot of control. But the, yeah. the, the whole thing with vitamin C, the, the desire to pull down um, Paul Marek, um, you know, as you know, better than most people, he's, his work in terms of um, IV vitamin C for um, sepsis mm-hmm. is was was um, pretty groundbreaking. He'd written the fundamental critical care textbooks and 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 was obviously a big um, supporter of early treatment and was involved in doing it. They had to take him down. They had to take Pierre Corey down and others that were speaking that kind of language because it, it is just incompatible with the plans for biopharmaceutical global do- dominance. And um, and that's why, you know, I've just come back from Vienna. We had, um, you know, um, Bob Malone and Ryan Cole and uh, um, Katarina Lindley and uh, a whole range of us were, were together, um, pulled together in in a bit of a sort of end of year celebration of three years of madness um, on, on a tour around Austria, which has seen some of the most severe um uh authoritarian approaches to lockdown and and uh, vaccine mandates and deregistering doctors who 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 didn't get themselves vaccinated um but uh, essentially that the message now is something that we're all changing and saying guys we have to just start building parallel systems it, it is otherwise a david and goliath battle where you focus everything all of your energy all the time on the system that's going to go and do what it's doing anyway and the real power we have is to say to people you know there is another way of doing health and um so that's what we're all doing we're all building these parallel systems but we have to build it from the ground up we've got to rebuild the bioethical basis in which healthcare is done we've got to take healthcare into the community and understand that it's something that happens over a lifetime. In fact, it begins preconception. It's not just something you do when the system breaks down. Um, and it involves social factors, economic factors. Um, you know, it involves, um, you know, things that happen at school, in educational systems, in the workplace. It happens in your kitchen, in your bedroom. It happens everywhere. Otherwise, we're just locked into this kind of disease management paradigm that we have been locked into and um you know the the new to nature patent model built on organic chemistry is now over so we we are entering the realms of of biologics and and that really is a, a system um this is difficult for some people to come to terms with but i do believe it's fundamental as we move into this transhumanist agenda um in which you know Ch- you know klaus schwab and others from the world economic forum 
uh, are big fans of it, where you start blurring the distinction between the biological, um, the digital, and the synthetic. And, um, and, and of course, they believe that is part of the solution. And they may believe it, you know, to their core. But there are many of us who say, actually, that doesn't feel right for us. In fact, the more you disconnect us from our natural system, the more additional problems that you cause, because us human beings have co-evolved with these natural systems for eons. And you know the the other sort of fundamental element that I think we're starting to see in through the grassroots and parts of the medical system is the fact that we're also starting to recognize that that the human body isn't quite what we think it is. And it you know, just as the um great systems of traditional medicine, whether you're looking at um, TCM and looking at meridian systems or you're looking at Ayurveda and you're looking at um, chakras, there is a, a bioenergetic system that exists as well. And modern science is now starting to understand that, you know, even if you look at the way a DNA molecule assembles itself, the way the nitrogenous bases pair up the A and the T and the G and the C, even if you put that into a saline environment, those pairs still line up. And the only way that they can do that, I mean, peer review journals will talk about, you know, is it a telepathic signal? Is it an electromagnetic? Is it a subtle energy? And yes, it does appear that that we are now entering the world of energy medicine that, that you know, has always been around. But um, until we start to look at systems that don't break that energetic system down and work with it, just as we can work with natural systems, we won't be creating health. So um, transhumanist, uh, transhumanism for us is out um, and we have to connect back to natural systems and start to understand them at a much deeper level than we currently do. Now, you've said a lot uh, that I think we need to unpick uh, uh, to, to make full sense of, but I wanted just to give one example of you know, the next biologic because I've spent the last year or so sort of deeply involved with uh, Alzheimer's and its prevention. And this um, latest drug, lecanemab, is one of those biologics. Uh, it's an anti-amyloid antibody. So we're talking about injections of antibodies, which are tailor-made to attack something, in this case, the amyloid protein or plaque, um, which is, well, it's considered to be a, a fundamental part of the pathology of Alzheimer's. However, 300 overall trials and about 40 clinical trials have shown that if you actually lower uh, amyloid with these drugs, you get really no clinical benefit at all. Uh, Lecanemab was the first drug to cross that line. It got 0.45 point out of an 18 point score, less than half a point uh, reduction. It was statistically significant. That's a third less than natural agents like omega-3 um, and B vitamins have achieved. So clinically it was much weaker. Uh, but as Professor David Smith, Oxford Pharmacology Emeritus Professor, said it, that level, less than half a point, would have no clinical effect. You know, it wouldn't be observable by a patient or a carer and so on. And, uh, you know, virtually no reduction in brain shrinkage. So this is a biologic, an anti-amyloid antibody costing. Originally, it was $40,000. Looks like the price is going to come in about 10000 
It'll probably be available on the NHS uh, in some form or another. It's already uh, available uh, privately next year. It has a one in five published peer-reviewed uh, side effect, brain bleeding or swelling. So, you know, these more friendly biologics actually are exactly the opposite. We can expect some very serious side effects. So that was just to sort of give a, a real life example of what a biologic means and and of course that there are there are genuinely friendly biologics so so you know a good example would be um uh, peptides derived from um the glands of 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 different animals um they can be synthesized and and there's been a huge amount of work done here um at the institute of uh, bioregulation and gerontology in st petersburg in russia that uh, over 40 years that that shows that these um, very specific combinations of amino acids to form small peptides taken from these particular glands can trigger stem cell regeneration in tissues. Now, the, the fundamental difference um, here between the antibody type and, and these is that they, they actually trigger damaged tissues or organs to return to their healthy cells. They literally, um, there's some, there are two big trials going on now in the United States with this using the Horvath epigenetic clock, and they literally are turning back the clock. Now, despite 40 years of work, the fact that, you know, big trials are going on in Europe, um, uh, you know, the, the, the work that uh, Vladimir Kavinson's team are doing is now very much based in Europe. Hardly anyone has heard about it, despite the fact that these are some of the most fundamental um, you know, new products. I mean, nothing new about the principle, but we're beginning to understand how we can regenerate systems. This is true healthcare. But um, at the same time, you will see that the European Medicines Agency is starting to develop a whole new regulatory framework for biosimilars, products that are produced in labs that that are like those in nature, in order to stop them essentially um or the effect will be to stop them being used as dietary or food supplements so Just you're, you're like really that. talking you're really talking about approaches that um stimulate the body's own natural ability to heal in some correct. correct a bit yeah. like um a bit like the fasting mimicking diet uh, approach can get those stem cells up and then allow the body to do uh, what it does exactly. so are you are you saying that natural medicine is now more under attack and uh and what can we do about that yeah look i i think it is it is definitely becoming more under attack for the simple reason that pharma are moving out of their previous space of looking at sort of organic chemistry to to make new to nature molecules and moving increasingly into the biosimilars biopharmaceutical area and and starting to play with um, the genetics of the system one way or another through gene expression, through stem cells, through um, controlling the immune system, etc. Um, again, where we're all at is we have to start building parallel systems. We have to build systems. I mean, that that is the central work that we do at ANH. You, 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 I think we've talked before about our, our blueprint project, which is how you could um, develop a, if you like, we called it blueprint because it's a theoretical model of how you could create a whole common language around creating health, regenerating health in communities outside the constructs of 
um, the clinical systems of medicine we know about that are basically about disease management. And the idea is not to take on or attack those clinical systems, actually to leave them alone and try and do society a favor by reducing the throughput the number of people who feed into those with preventable chronic diseases because you've managed them in the community. We're now moving to a system where we're trying to translate that into a real world scenario. So we're coming together with, with, with businesses, um, with, uh, you know, people who are creating digital platforms to set up a demonstration model of it in the real world. Um, because, just as, as as we saw with the organic farming model um, that was initially, you know, laughed at and organic, those of us involved in the science of it were told, do more science, do more science, do more science. And then we turned around and said, look, there's enough science out there. Let's just put it into practice. And more and more farmers guided by scientists would do that. Um, and in the end, um, it's the proof of the pudding, isn't it? And so we have to do the same thing in the healthcare space, understand that most clinics, most clinical systems of medicine are really not in the business of creating or regenerating health. We've got to see there is a strong parallel between any regenerative system, whether it's regenerate, you know, regen ag, whether it's, um, you know, sustainable energy. These are all systems that work with and not against nature. And we've never done that in, in, in medicine because it's had so much capture by these corporate interests. So, we, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of us. And I think, in a way, COVID has acted as a catalyst to pull even a large number of people who've been involved only in mainstream medicine to say, the system is broken. We don't want to play it. Where are we going to get trained? How are we going to learn about really how the human body really functions? How can we use natural medicine more effectively? Um, and it's happening. So you're talking about taking charge of your health. That is one of the most important sort of political acts. And it is. And, and you can't do that unless you have a degree of medical autonomy. And again, that's one of the reasons that we've seen over the last three years, massive moves to remove civil liberties so that you don't have that medical autonomy and this this control of almost every aspect of of our being, you know, from our physical movement to the kind of healthcare that we 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 choose. To the point, um, you know, I I went to a funeral with a, a you know a, a, a relative uh, of my my wife actually um yesterday and um you know he was a person who had uh, uh bowel cancer that was then under control he was um heavily uh injected thought he was doing the right thing having the boosters and we saw a case and we're seeing so many of these cases of incredibly aggressive return of the cancer um and um you know he he just his his life was was gone in the space of two weeks when the cancer came back riddled through through his body but you turn up at the at the funeral everyone's going oh my god david went so quickly um and um people greet you now are you all up to date with your vaccines yeah. and you know it's just the the cognitive dissonance that we're going through because there's been no ability to talk about any of these processes i mean it's it is actually criminal. 
And then let's talk a little bit about citizen science, citizen health science, because there has been quite a movement away from just relying on the small randomized controlled trial, uh, which establishes a principle that, if effective, could then, you know, affect policy. But now there's some very, there's sort of big data stuff going on. Um, Correct. Yeah. You know, that that's where it's all happening. The, the um, you you may remember years ago, we were all sort of battling it out with people like Edzard Ernst, who um, was arguing you needed to have um, randomized controlled trials in order to determine that an intervention worked. And um, uh, he the thing he failed to do is understand that in the real world, um, it is hardly ever the intervention that works on its own. If it, if an inter, you know, if you look at um, it's what we call total effect. If you look at the fact that an intervention itself might be responsible for you know thirty percent of the effect, but then you will have you know a placebo effect, a regression to the mean. You'll have concomitant advice coming in from the health practitioner that might have changed the diet, the lifestyle, and in the end, within this real world system. There is a multitude of things that contribute to it. So one of the reasons that people keep going back for natural medicine is because they see it working. Yet Edzard Ernst, by only focusing on RCTs, despite the fact, you know, we've analyzed most of his studies. And, you know, even then, we, we, we've we seen that something like 60% of the studies that he did of the 1,200 papers that he published during his time at, at Exeter showed a positive effect. He kept on denigrating them because of his belief system that they weren't as effective as people were claiming. But if you do the same thing as BMJ, you know, clinical evidence was doing for around about the 3000 um, conventional assessment they looked at, the highest level of efficacy that they got for the intervention on its own was about 11 percent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in conventional medicine, we don't see a lot of effect, which essentially tells us that we need to change the way that we're looking at the factors that contribute to effectiveness. Effectiveness is what you measure in the real world. Um, efficacy is a is an artificial construct that was built out of the licensing system to try and get you know licenses for for medicines, and um, it, it it occurs within the very limited parameters of a highly controlled randomized controlled trial, um, and has no bearing on the real world. So some examples in uh, start in the US, the Grassroots Health Foundation, uh, they have many tens of thousands of people taking vitamin D, recording results, and it's their citizens' health campaign. We in the UK, foodforthebrain.org, recognizing that the process that leads to cognitive decline uh, is multifactorial. It involves things that involved in the structure of the brain, like omega-3, B vitamins, methylation, et cetera, the function, sugar supply, ketones, antioxidants, polyphenols, and also the utilization, exercise, social interaction, uh, mental stimulation, and so on. So when you realize the systems-based approach, there never will be a drug. I mean, it just cannot be that way. It's It just can't work. So what we're doing is involving thousands of people. We've tested 300 90,000 people now almost uh, to track people over time and see what's happening. Zoe is another you know, very good example of this. Um, even the, the uh, biobank data in the UK. So big data uh, collection and interaction 
kind of in the real world that seems to be now becoming quite a force in correct we've been developing for the last three or four years uh, an app um, called Hawthorne that's going to be released for beta test soon that that really brings together the whole kind of um, area of healthcare interaction that an individual has to then see the patterns of health and choices that they make, which is a, a big data approach. Um, we, we, we have it already in five different languages so that we can really start to get a much, much um, bigger, you know, data set on on health essentially nearly all the statistics that people are used to seeing are about disease and we have very very little in the way of data capture on the things that keep people healthy probably one of the most famous examples of looking at health are the blue zone studies the five blue zones where people live to be centenarians with very little in the the way of chronic disease but by and large we don't spend much effort at all understanding how people like Patrick Holford and Rob Verkirk managed to keep themselves um, pretty healthy, placing almost no burden on the healthcare system itself. And that's one of the big changes that needs to be made. So we move to the end of our podcast. What can people practically do? How can they support the wonderful work of the Alliance uh, for Natural Health? Uh, what's your last few words of uh, wisdom well, and hope for the year ahead? Thank you, Patrick. Well, look, the, the, the single biggest thing that any one of us can do is to um, take control of your own health. Um, you cannot rely on someone else to do it for you. We are all individual beings operating in unique, dynamic ecological systems. We have to take control of that. Um, second thing I think we all have to do, um, and we heard this very, very loudly from Matthias Desmond um, while we were in Vienna, is if there's one thing to do, you have to stand up and be counted when you see something that is blatantly incorrect, um, because this, this flawed ideology has really become dominant. And in any system where there is um, a transition towards a more authoritarian or totalitarian system, the only thing in history that's ever worked is to say, guys, it's wrong. And that means talking to the people around you um, and understanding how to do it without offending them, putting yourself in their shoes so you can help um, them understand and see the world in a different way. Um, to find out more about all of this and our work, um, please come to our website, which is anhinternational.org. Um, we, we've been obviously um, heavily censored during the last three years, um, as has anyone that's um, um, been remotely interested in real science or um, truth in science, if I can use the term. Um, and um, so um, we've actually created a, a membership system, a Pathfinder membership system that allows us to communicate more openly, which is around about the cost of a, a coffee a month um, to, to join. And um, we have a huge amount of information. We've got a lot going on um, behind the scenes. We are right in the middle of building a new healthcare system, as I've, as I've mentioned. So um, and we really believe um, there are enough people now who have woken up because of the um, errors of judgment that have been made during the last three years that are actually working in our favor so that we can create these new parallel systems. 
So that's uh, anhinternational.org. Please do go there, join, support. Uh, Rob, I want to thank you massively for your insight and your commitment uh, over now, uh, you know, two decades. And yes, I wish you all the best in the year to come. And uh, we will be supporting your endeavors as best as we can. Uh, we are in charge of our own health and we need to take that charge and also share whatever information we can with others. So, Rob, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick.